Hi, everybody. I want to welcome you to another Voices of Recovery recording. I'm very blessed today to have with me Janice Gant, who is in Texas. And Janice wrote a lovely book called The Shame Game. And I'm very happy to have her with me today because shame is something that I think is so crucial and critical to all of us. Janice graduated, I'm going to just read her bio so that everyone knows a little bit about who Janice is. She graduated from Texas Tech and from Amberton University. She trained extensively with Terrence Real, who's the founder of Relational Life Institute, and Pia Melody, who's the senior clinical advisor for the Meadows. And Janice has been involved as an active participant in several educational trainings, public forums, and programs in the Greatest Dallas Council on Alcohol and Drug Abuse the North Texas Drug and Alcohol Summit, and the Tarakan County Council on Alcoholism and Drug Abuse. And prior to her private practice, she served the Dallas Independent School District, the Timberline Medical Health System, and the Recovery Health Care Corporation, among others. So Janet is a practicing counselor specializing in helping individuals and couples experience abundant living as they overcome the effects of their own childhood traumas. And Janet is also available for our private sessions and public speaking engagements and workshops. And you can reach her at JaniceGant.com. And Janice, welcome. Thank you. It's such an honor to be, to be here and to be interviewed. I'm so happy to have you. You know, I, I've been wanting to talk about shame for a long time because in my own work, um, I find that shame comes up a lot. And... I'm happy to have you. Um, you wrote this lovely book that details shame from, I think, beginning to healing. And I wanted to just start with asking you a little bit about the basics. What is shame? Well, shame is a feeling that, with a message attached to it that says that we are not valuable. It is when somebody says to us as children, shame on you, or you should be ashamed of yourself, there's a quickening in the child's spirit that gives them the message that there is something intrinsically wrong with who they are. So and basically, in, in a nutshell, that's what it is. And then we carry this shame with us throughout our life, and we have a great deal, it prevents us from embracing our humanness, from embracing the idea that we are created perfectly imperfect. So shame starts for all of us, I, I'm hearing you say, in childhood, and it's based in part at least on the messages that we get. Right. Right. It is in what I believe is that every child is created complete in their values. So the child is born with as much value as they can possibly have, that it's a non-negotiable entity. So the child has no need to attain more value, and the child's value itself cannot be reduced. What happens is if you, if you look at a newborn baby and you see the the spontaneous joy and the child is full of themselves and when they're hungry they cry and when they're upset they cry and then they laugh they laugh spontaneously you see that they don't question their value and then through the result of 
the lack of nurturing in some form, either it's ineffective parenting, churches, schools, society, the child starts to question their value, and that's the beginning of shame. As that continues, then there's a shame core that is developed, and it becomes toxic to the child's ability to live abundantly as we take it throughout life. So shame starts as as a child in us as when we're children, and then it sometimes I, I see it manifest itself in sort of a deep embarrassment, like you're saying about who we are, not what we do, but that we are somehow undeserving or humiliating or embarrassed or just a really deeply bad, dark feeling about about our true self, that there's something exactly. deeply wrong with us. Exactly. I love the when you said it's a very dark feeling because it truly is. We are embarrassed because of our imperfection. So if I double book a client and walk out into the lobby and there are two people there, if I can say to them, oh, my goodness, I apologize for being human, and but yet, and then I can walk back in my office and maybe have some regret that that's what I did, but I don't feel like, oh, my gosh, I'm stupid, I'm invaluable, there's something wrong with me intrinsically. And that's where it is, that's what sets us up for imperfection and for having to figure out some way to medicate or get us out of that feeling. That we are worthless because we've made a mistake. Right. That because we're created perfectly imperfect. So it goes to the very entity of what we are because we cannot be perfect therefore we would be god or the universe or a higher power ourselves and so we walk around with that and and either feel less than or we will develop an attitude of superiority or judgmentalism as a way to pull ourselves out of that and feel like we're better than others the thing that i love to say to my clients is, you know, go to a newborn nursery and stand at the window and see if you can pick out the bad baby. And it's impossible. So, therefore, you develop this attitude of there really are no bad people. And it gives us the ability to truly love our fellow man. So I think it's, it's intrinsic to our ability to love and our ability to thrive in life. You know, that's a very powerful image and that everybody, even people that have, whose lives have taken what we would clearly objectively say or, you know, have taken a you know, difficult path, are born whole and, and also needing, needing food, needing love, that these are all inborn human, human qualities and that somehow as we grow, we develop the idea based on our messages that we get and maybe even sometimes our own internal wiring that somehow we're less than. Right. And, and then we try and compensate for that in ways that really keep us in a dark space. Exactly. One of the things and, I, I – go ahead. Well, I was just going to say one of the things that I learned was when, when I was working at Timberlawn – we would have people that would come in and we would treat them for addiction and then they would go right back out and, and relapse. And 
and there, there, there was something missing. And what I, what I was able to learn through the gift of being able to train with Theomality was that what was happening is we weren't getting to the source and the root cause of the internal strife. And once you can uproot that and heal that, then people are able to make those changes that are going to set them free from whatever they have decided is going to give them the illusion of feeling better. Right. So somehow underneath the feeling of shame, it seems to me that there's a a belief or a thought of self-criticism or self-attack, or a real self-demand, that maybe even a real unreasonable demand, that we are safe by being perfect and we have to hammer ourselves into perfectionism, or we don't matter, we don't deserve, we we don't um, have value. Exactly. And the thing that's so dangerous about that, Melissa, is that perfection is an illusion, because of the very nature in which we are created, which is perfectly imperfect, when we're seeking that perfection, it, the bar is always rising. And so it's, it's unattainable. So then we're continually reminded of our imperfection. And if there's shame around that, then we're continually reminded that we are not valuable. So some people would say that the perfectionism serves to keep them in line, you know, especially if that's an eating disorder voice or the voice of addiction that sometimes operates inside of us. And it would say, well, I have to be perfect because if I'm not striving for for perfectionism, nothing else matters. That's what keeps me in line is that harsh inner criticism. So how would you respond to that? Well, I would, what I would say to a person is that in some way, they received that message, maybe from a family of origin or from a mother or a father who had the expectation that the child was going to perform perfectly in school or be a perfect athlete. And I think what happens is people learn to connect their value with their ability to perform. So what I what I tell people is your value is intrinsic. It's like a diamond. There's, there is, it is what it is. Your performance is separate from that value. So there's a difference between behavior and value. I have five grandchildren, and when my grandchildren, you know, get angry with one of their siblings and hit one another or something like that, what I will say is, you know, your behavior is not okay and it needs to stop. But I'll always follow that up with, but your value is precious. So I make a very conscious effort, and I try to educate parents to do that, to separate value from behavior. And what the, what guilt is, is guilt is when we act outside of our value system. So the difference in guilt and shame is guilt is a is about our behavior, and shame is about our value. So when I behave in a way that is outside of my value system, what I want to do is learn the lesson and then throw away the experience rather than to continue to berate myself for the behavior. So that is really powerful stuff. And I think for 
anyone who is used to criticizing themselves a lot or attacking themselves or who has a an internal voice, an eating disorder voice or a, uh, an addiction voice that's that's probably an internalized message from their outer world at some point in their life that says you're bad. You did this. You made a mistake. You're terrible. Mistakes aren't allowed. It has us confusing exactly what you said, what we did with who we are, and that mistakes are terrible and mistakes are not allowed. And even name-calling, a lot of people internally name-call themselves. You're so stupid. You're such an idiot. So how do we start to heal this? Well, what I do with my clients is educate them primarily about the difference between shame and guilt. And then we go back to their family of origin and we try to pinpoint the the sources of some of those negative messages. I tell my clients all the time, I said, look, we are not doing this work to blame your parents or your teachers or your religious institution. But what we want to do is look at it so we have an understanding of the very tip bottom place of that root so that we can uproot it and get rid of it. Um, I tell my own children, you know, look, when, you know, when before I went back and did all of my healing work, I, I made a lot of errors in my parenting. And I say to them, you know, I did the best that I could possibly do, but I got to tell you, there was a lot of it that wasn't good at all. So it's okay for you to go back and look at that and and do your own healing work, and I apologize for those behaviors. And so so people give themselves permission to look at it is the very first step. Then once they look at it, what we do is we go back and we actually do trauma work around healing the wound of the child, which I do that by imaging and um, taking photographs out of themselves as children and really kind of doing a three-step process to reparent the child. That three-step process is validating the child's reality, being able to say, look, I know why you're so afraid to make mistakes because when you were little, you were punished by making a mistake. And then nurture that child that is within each of us by telling ourselves through photographs initially, I love you, you are precious, and you are safe. And then the third step is setting a limit for the child by telling the child, but I can't let you live my life for me anymore. So that message that you got when you were little, that you had to look perfect, that's not going to work anymore. So I'm going to live my life now by telling myself it's okay for me to not look perfect. So then we start to actually, you know, create different pathways in the brain And then those old pathways can heal and will no longer be the predominant thought process for the individual. Right. So there's so many important things that you just said. I wanted to pick up on a few of them, one being that when we're used to hearing those messages, we find a way to survive. Sometimes we survive by continuing those messages inside of ourselves, but that really that's not a way to survive. It helped us survive as children but it doesn't serve us well moving into young adulthood and adult life. The concept that we have to attack ourselves or or continue those shameful messages in order to be okay, it may be familiar, 
but we don't have to live in that. It's okay to be okay. Exactly. Um, very, the, very important. Yeah, you know, one of the other things you said that um, was so also so powerful was that you apologized to your children. And I think that many of us would yearn maybe to hear from a parent, hey, I didn't know any better, or not that it would necessarily make it go away, but for a parent to say, hey, it wasn't you. It was me learning to live my life, and I know that maybe you know, you were hurt or harmed by some of the things I did, but but I want you to know that I understand that and I take responsibility for that. And even though that may not, you know, solve the whole internal pain problem, I think it would go a long way. But I don't I don't know that a lot of people have a parent who's willing to own how they were or what they may have done as a parent. Right. I think that what happens is that as a parent, because you can't really pour milk from an empty pitcher. So if a parent hasn't done any of their work and they are shame-driven, then it's very difficult for them to be able to sit in the presence of the truth. So what they will do is they'll get defensive. I remember one time, Melissa, my oldest daughter was reading a reading from one of her morning book, devotional books, and she she said, Mom, and she read this reading to me, and she said, Mom, this was exactly what it was like when you and Dad were married. This was, I went, my husband and I got a divorce when I was like 42, and I went back to graduate school and kind of recreated myself. And prior to that, our household was very traumatic and very chaotic. And every ounce of my body wanted to say, yes, but remember all those great vacations we took you on? and Or to say, well, I mean, but what about you or blah, 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 blah. And I I couldn't, you know, I didn't do that. I said, you're right. It was, and I really apologize. When that happens, when the parent can own their own humanness in the face of their children and own how it has had an effect on them, it's, I tell people it's kind of like an Etch-A-Sketch goes across the screen. Still have to work on it but the child feels validated about their reality. And when they're validated by their actual parent, it does a huge amount of, it's like putting a deep healing salve on that deep wound. Oh, that is just so well put. And, you know, it goes so deeply far in terms of healing. What about for those that, don't have a parent that has done their own work or is able to give that very precious gift to a child of any age, to an adult child, is there a way for an adult child who ha- who doesn't have that experience with a parent owning their own stuff and validating those experiences to help heal themselves anyway? Yes, absolutely. That's what that reparenting process is about. And I'll, I'll tell my clients, I'll say, you know, because your parent is not in a place to be able to participate with you in this healing, you have the privilege of reparenting that little wounded child that lives inside of you. And so they can take that on as their own past, and they get to do that reparenting process. And so it really is not necessary at all. Some of the other things that I'll do is I'll have them write that child a letter as a parent, and um, and then I'll have them write the, their own parent a letter. I don't. Uh, I rarely, rarely 
encourage them to mail that. I say we don't we don't heal our abuse by abusing our abusers. And so, you know, but it helps to to write that out, to see it in print, to draw sketches about what it was like as that experience and then visualize themselves going in and rescuing that child out of that experience. A lot of, of what the deep healing work is about is about actually closing your eyes and visualizing yourself in that in your bedroom let's say sitting on the bed fearful of the of the anger that can burst through the door at any time and then you is in your adult self walking into that room and picking up that child and taking that little child out so as that if those sort of processes are repeated what happens is we create a bond with our own wounded inner child I always tell my clients it's just such psychobabble, but it's really true. We go and rescue that precious wounded child. Well, I think it's, it's – I'm glad you said psychobabble because I know that some <laughs> people say, oh, this is just such psychobabble. This stuff is just so corny and so hokey, and really I have to love and take care of my inner child. Like, But exactly. there is something so deeply true about it. We're so used to um, – I should say many of us, are used to that harshness as a way of survival and a way of staying loyal and connected to our parents in some in some way. Um, but really, we can live gently and take tender care of that child inside of us. It's okay to be gentle to ourselves. Exactly. Because we so often we treat ourselves in the way in which we were treated. Yeah. When we develop that muscle of self-care, you know, in your work that self-care is a huge part of the healing process. And the gentle nature of that is what was missing for most of us as children who end up having some sort of uh, difficulty with some coping mechanisms as adults. Yeah, and, you know, that, that just leads me to um, another question that I had for you. Um, in your book, you talk about being selfish versus selfless. You even have a, a, a lovely diagram, and you talk about adult maturity and the cradle of moderation. Um, and I'm going to quote you where we'll experience the gentle rocking motion of practicing self-care. And I love that for a number of reasons, and I wanted to ask you to elaborate on that because I think that a lot of us feel like we're selfish if we take care of ourselves, and then we get more self-criticizing and then more shame and humiliation, like we shouldn't take care of ourselves. So how right. do we grow into that? Well, you know, um, I'm so glad that you mentioned that little diagram. That's really one of my favorite things. I, I put it, I'm sitting here in my office and I'm looking at my board and I have it, I have it on, my, uh, on my chalkboard right now. And so it is so important because I think so much of us were raised to believe that it's an either-or concept. And so if I'm not being selfless, then I'm being selfish. And especially, I think, as women, we're taught to, um, you know, make the peanut butter and jelly sandwich, cut off the crust and eat the crust and give it the rest of the sandwich to the children and, and, our, and our partner. And so it is, it's learning that it is, it's on a continuum. And so whenever we start to take care of ourselves if we were raised to be selfless another one of those messages another 
uh, source of that message is also a lot of religious institutions that have taught us to die unto ourselves and to not be full of ourselves. So when we start this self-care process and we start, start saying no when we want to say no and yes when we want to say yes, we will feel very selfish. So I tell my clients, when you, st- you know, they'll come in and say, oh, my gosh, I feel so selfish because I decided to lay in bed Saturday morning and I told my children to get some cereal for themselves. And I'm like, yay, you're doing it right if you start to feel that selfish because I think self-care is more towards the selfish part of the continuum than the selfless. But people who take care of themselves are not selfish. I say men who fly uh, airplanes into skyscrapers are selfish. Self-care is never that extreme form of selfishness. Yeah, you know, I, I think that when we feel deprived ourselves, it's very hard to give. And if we take care of ourselves and we feel that we have what we need, we can then go on to be very giving and gifting to others. I'm always reminded of that airplane analogy where if you're flying in an airplane and they tell you at the beginning the safety precautions if the oxygen masks fall and you're traveling with small children, put your own mask on first. Right. And then you can be of service to others. So it's not a choice, and I think you say this in the book, it's not a choice between taking care of ourselves and taking care of others because we get good feelings when we're of service to others. But we need to take care of ourselves, too, and go from a place of having and not a place of always being depleted. You're absolutely right. And I think that what I I remember experiencing this myself is that when I, when I am depleted and I try to take care of others, a lot of times I'll have a resentment about it. Because it's not coming from a place of fullness. And I say we have to fill ourselves up first, and then the overflow will be love for others. And I, you know, there's a, there's, you know, the scripture that says, love your neighbor as yourself. And I think that's what we do. If we don't love ourselves, if we're not full of ourselves, if we're not loving ourselves and taking care of ourselves, we cannot effectively love others. Right. It doesn't say love your neighbor instead of yourself. No, exactly. Exactly. Right. Very powerful stuff. And, you you know, I noticed also something you said in your book, which um, parents say to their kids a lot, which is you're such a good kid. And you say, instead of saying you're such a good kid, how about you are so precious to me? Because the good kid sets us up for a good kid, bad kid, and then the bad puts us back into shame, and I think it puts us back into feeling responsible. I know when I was a kid, I felt responsible for everybody. I was an oldest child, so I know that kind of comes along with it, but I felt like everything was my fault, everybody's feelings. I was supposed to get it right because I was responsible, but I couldn't control it, so that must have meant that I was bad. And I was always bouncing back and forth between um, shame and resentment. Right, and what a what a terrible burden for you to have as a little girl is because yeah. a child cannot take care of a parent. So you are set up to fail from the get go around that. Yeah. I also one of my one of the favorite things that I try to teach people to do is rather than say to our children, I'm so proud of you 
because then we make their performance or their achievement or whatever about us is to say, wow, you did so well on that. I bet you feel really good about yourself. You rock. You are so awesome. So we keep ourselves, we're consciously keeping ourselves separate from our children's performance. Yeah, the parenting piece is really important. And when we didn't get those messages, and I think many of us didn't, um, it's possible to re-message our own brains and our own hearts and to give ourselves those kinds of messages. Absolutely. At, and and it, when you practice these these sort of attitudes towards ourselves, when, when you practice it towards yourself, it becomes so sweet and it becomes so precious. People will often start to talk about it and their eyes will fill with tears. And I'm like, that's that joy pain of really loving yourself. And it becomes such a privilege. I wanted to talk more about that privilege that you just said and and how difficult it sometimes is in today's world to do that for ourselves, especially in the face of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all these electronic messages that we get that sort of make it look like everybody else in the world has and is living the life. I know, um, you know, in 12-step rooms we hear um, the acronym for fear a lot, false evidence appearing real, and I, you mention it in your book as well. And it looks like everyone's got it going on and what's wrong with us. So I think that brings on a lot of shame, and I wanted to ask you to comment a little bit about that. Absolutely. I think that I tell people whenever we compare, we lose. Because what we're doing is we're comparing on an illusion ourselves. We're looking at their world and thinking that their world is filled with what we think we are missing. And that itself is an illusion. So we have to kind of roll our eyeballs back inside of ourselves and remind ourselves that we are precious. So we might say, you know, my behavior is not what I would like for it to be or my body is not exactly what I would like for it to be, but I am valuable and I am precious and I can make changes for myself that are whole and healthy. And then we stop. We make it. I think we have to make a very conscious effort to stop comparing. My daughter, my oldest daughter, has a production company, and she produced the cover of a fashion magazine one day. And I said she was talking about the model that she used, and I said, "Oh my gosh, was she so beautiful?" And she said, "No, she wasn't." She said it was really quite funny because we had to kind of tape her dress together in the back because it was too. It was too tight, but but then when the cover came out, she looked perfect. And I think what so many people do is they are looking at the cover of other people's lives, and they're they're ascribing perfection to it, and then they feel like a loser. Right, and then we compare and we feel less than. And I right. wonder also if that leads us um, to feeling ashamed of our shame. Right, right. That's a very good point. Yes. Yes. We shouldn't feel this way. We shouldn't have all these bad feelings when, in fact, you know, these bad feelings, like we've been talking about, have deep origin and they're very powerful 
and they come from culture and institutions and teachers and parents and and then we feel like well we shouldn't have them and then i wonder right. if that prevents us from moving forward to saying what do I do about them? It is possible to live differently and to live not with this kind of shame. But if we feel like we shouldn't even have them and we don't allow ourselves all of our feelings, then we can't even get to the healing process. You're exactly right, Melissa. And I tell people that whenever we are shooting on ourselves, we're shaming ourselves. Right. So what I, I encourage people to replace the word could and yeah. say, you know, I could do this without feeling shame. Okay, then that opens up the world of possibility for myself. And therein lies the hope. Catching yourself in the place of shame is the trickiest part, and it feels like you're shrinking. So I think when we learn to identify that, we can pull ourselves up from that shrinking place and say, yes, now I can do that differently rather than I should do that differently because the should is is the shame itself. Right. Wow. This is such powerful stuff that, you know, you're bringing to us. I'm looking at our time and I'm thinking we, we have to wrap up soon. I wanted to ask you before we wrap up where does someone start if someone is feeling really low less than not worth it not worthwhile not like they're good at anything if they're in that dark place or even if they go to that dark place a lot where they're beating themselves up where does one start to heal i think the beginning of healing is putting our voice to it. I, you know, in 12-step meetings, we talk about our secrets keep us sick. And I think that I encourage everyone who is possibly listening to this to reach out for help. Try to find a therapist. Reach out to somebody that you feel really, really safe with and start putting words to your feelings. Then I think that you the universe will bring to that person some resources for healing. I think we live in an age of healing. I think we live in an age of spirituality as opposed to religiosity. And I think there's healing all around us. And if I think we take the first step, I think it the, the path will be revealed to each person. Thank you for that. So I'm going to thank you again for being with me today and for sharing your wisdom with our listeners. And I want to just remind everybody again, the title of your book is The Shame Game, and the subtitle is Leaving Shame to Live in Abundance. And what a beautiful concept because I, you know, I, I hear from the way you're presenting it that it is possible. There are ways to do it, and we can live in abundance, and we can be out of that, that dark place. So thank you so um, much. Oh, Melissa, thank you so much for having me and for the work that you're doing. I think this the website is thrilling and exciting, and I wish you the very best of good fortune in the future around it. Okay, thank you so much for that and for your support. And there's a link to Janice's site next to her picture and her book on the Voices of Recovery website, Recovery, Hope, and Healing, so you can find Janice. Uh, pretty easily if you want her, also JaniceDegant.com. So thank you again. Thank you. My privilege.